Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millions, coddled entitled narcissistic, workshy, and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It'll really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Hello everyone, it's your host Ali Jaffe and welcome to today's episode on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. So... On today's episode, we're going to delve deeper into the world of herbal medicine. This is part two of the Pukka Herb sequence, so be sure to listen to part one with the wonderful men from Pukka Herbs, Ewan and Simon. But today's episode is all about girl power, and we're going to welcome the wonderful team of Joe Weber, Vivian Rolfe and Marion McConaughey. Joe Weber is the head of herbal education at Pukka, overseeing the delivery of industry-leading education to a range of audiences, including practitioners, trade and the general public. She is committed to a health education agenda and a more sustainable healthcare system. Jo is also an Ayurvedic practitioner and yoga teacher. She holds a BSc in Ayurveda and has run an Ayurvedic clinic for 12 years, as well as wellbeing retreats and hand-on Ayurvedic cooking, beauty and body care workshops. She also holds a Master's in Human Sciences from Oxford University and a Postgraduate Certificate in Education. She currently lives in rural Somerset where she enjoys growing food and herbs and foraging through the seasons from spring to autumn. Vivian Rolfe is the Head of Herbal Research at Pukka, leading on how herbs benefit our health. Much of this work is done through engaging with young scientists via internships and student projects to large-scale human studies. She's an advocate for open access to research and seeks to share data on herbal research for the wider benefit of society. Vivian is a gut physiologist and nutritionist by training. For 15 years, she led bioscience education in UK universities and holds a National Teaching Fellowship, an extremely prestigious accolade given to outstanding university teachers. She's a passionate educator and researcher and her contribution to herbal research is inspiring. And last but not least, Marion McConaughey. Marion is a herbal research specialist at Pukka, where she, is, where she works with the Pukka team to ensure the research supporting Pukka products is up to date, as well as forming exciting collaborations with universities on herbal research. Marion is a, is a practising medical herbalist in Brighton, a member of the College of Practitioners of Phytotherapy and an associate editor with the Journal of Herbal Medicine. Marion is particularly interested in women's hormonal health and herbal history, having published a paper looking into how 19th century health professionals used herbs. So I'll be sure to ask her on how it's changed to today in the 21st century. Let's invite our guests. So let's welcome these wonderful ladies. 
Hi everyone, what a pleasure it is to have you lovely ladies on the podcast episode today. A real force of herbal nature. I feel we've got a little battle of the sexes going on with part one being the men at Pooker, Ewan and Simon, and part two with you all. So bring on the girl power today. So let's start off by um, getting each of you to introduce yourselves and what inspired you to join the team at Pucker. Hi, my name's Jo Webber. I'm Head of Herbal Education at Pucker, and I'm also an Ayurvedic practitioner and a yoga teacher. Um, I had a background working in sustainable finance and conservation, and then I trained as an Ayurveda practitioner and yoga teacher. And after being self-employed for 10 years, I really wanted to work for a like-minded organisation. And Pucker was the perfect fit with its focus on nurturing people, plants and planet. Wonderfully put. And on to the next lady. Will you introduce yourself, please? Okay, I don't mind going next. Hi, I'm Viv. I'm head of research at Pucker. I've been there just over two years. Um, So I had a background in medical research. I'm a gastroenterologist and gut physiologist. I'd spent several years in the pet food manufacturing industry and then went into universities and was a lecturer for a number of years. But joined Pucker, really, I think what inspired me the most is having had the career I had and knew nothing about plants, yet was dealing with human health. The the invitation to understand plants and herbs in terms of their application on human health was absolutely compelling. So I made the jump from a university back into industry. Awesome. And finally, last but not least, Marion. Hi, my name's Marion McConaughey. Um, I work in the research team as a herbal research specialist. Um, so I started out um, studying pharmacology uh, and doing a master, uh, then a degree in herbal medicine and a master's in medicinal natural products. Um, and I joined PUCA really because I want to contribute to um, better knowledge about how herbs work, how plants help uh, with human health, really. Well, such a diverse range of experiences and what's so apparent is so many of you came from that biomedical model and then pivoted into this holistic health model, which is something I'm so passionate about. So it would be really useful for our listeners to hear about the birth of herbal medicine research, something you all are deeply involved in. So let's hear about how it started way back when and how its practice differs in the 21st century and what you guys do within your practice. Okay, so really the, the history of herbal medicine research is, is the, the same as the history of med- medical research. Um, you know, essentially uh, until kind of uh, the 19th century, um, the majority, or even up to the 20th century, the majority of medicines came from plants um, and uh, people just researched how, how they worked. For example, Hippocrates in the fifth century in ancient Greece was using um, sal- uh, white willow for treating pain and uh, and fever and aches. Um, and it wasn't really until the active extract psilocin was isolated by a German man in the, in the 1820s that people started to think about being able to use uh, individual constituents to treat health complaints. So um, that then, obviously, as we know, that, that was finally played around with by chemists and, uh, and the final oxidized salicylic acid would have been mm-hmm. used um, as the medicine. Uh, and I guess the, the way that herbal medicine research differed from, uh, from medical 
research would have come kind of in the uh, in the 1960s with the advent of uh, ethnopharmacology, where um, people would be looking at the pharmacology and the health benefits of plants uh, as uh, traditional medicines rather than just the plants that we use as medicines themselves. So fascinating for how you know how long it's been around, but yet it's still not been integrated enough into the medical model. So, um, could you then tell us how herbal research compares today? What's happening in the twenty first century? What are you up to at the moment with your herbal research? So, in the twenty first century, there's uh, you know a really wide range of ways that uh, herb medicine is investigated. Everything from kind of in vitro studies looking at the mechanisms of, of how plants might be acting in the body, right up to kind of full scale clinical trials that then undergo. Um, uh, systematic review and, and you end up with kind of gold standard evidence for, for how a herb uh, might be helping um, uh, benefit health. Viv, have you got anything to add? Yeah, I think, I think it's such a fascinating area and, you know, you, you think about the whole paradigm of evidence-based medicine and even our modern research, it's so young and useful in comparison to the, the thousands of years worth of, sort of traditional approaches and I, I think one of the things I find fascinating is trying to take the tremendous herbal wisdom the likes of Marion and Joe have and fit it into that medical model when we're sure. constructing trials with universities and there's a real tension there and it, you feel you get this unfair criticism because you're not looking at one active intervention for one primary outcome you know holistic medicine is all looking about power of whole blends of herbs on the whole body so um i think modern modern day medicine probably has a lot to learn from its traditional views but also i'm thinking we need a new research paradigm in order to really explore um the traditional medicines in the way we want to use them it's very interesting you say that viv and i think it's really fascinating how you know the evidence-based world works and how the research structures are very much weighted towards you know the hierarchy that we learn very early on in our medical training and that scientists and academics learn alike and you know that's with randomized controlled trials right at the top and it's very frustrating in the world of nutrition where they can't do that because of course you can't have double blind and you can't have um this intervention study where you give a group of people um, junk food and they don't know about it you're always going to know and it's very difficult because then you know these huge researchers like for instance I'm reading uh, Professor Felice Jacker's great game changer book at the moment she's the leading food and mood researcher um, she works at Deakin University in Australia and she talks about how you know it has to be observational studies in order to um, ascertain results from nutrition and it can't be RCTs so you're right and I'm sure this exactly applies to herbal medicine and you know we can't um, just rely on the fact that RCTs are at the top of the hierarchy because it doesn't work in this way so we do need that uh, paradigm shift so could you tell our listeners a little bit about the high quality trials, um, you know, that kind of spark your interest and will spark our listeners' interest? Give some examples. Yeah, so um, 
part of what Marion and myself do at Pucker is set up collaborations with UK universities, working with awesome people and really amazing students. And it, it is such an exciting job to do, bringing bringing people from scientific backgrounds into studying herbs. Um, and, and the way we try and approach it is to, to not just focus on, on a herb doing one thing. So, you know, some of the trials that we've got ongoing, for example, are looking at herbs for cognitive function, but we're also looking at the microbiome um, and other effects on the bodies. Um, we've got another um, study going on looking at one of our female herbs, Shatavri, which is an amazing Indian herb for women's health. Um, and again, we're not just focusing on one outcome, we're looking at a whole battery of effects so by that way you know we're taking a more holistic approach it makes the research more complex um, the scientists are measuring lots and lots of different things and it's, it, it takes longer um, but I think that way we're really unlocking the depth to these herbs it's not one thing doing one thing um, and you know I'm sure Marion can comment more on sort of the, the phytochemistry and the complexity of the amazing compounds within the herbs which we're also trying to tease out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, one of the things that's discussed in, in herbal medicine is is the synergy of different constituents, uh, both within a herb and within different herbs working together. Um, there's been some research on the herb ginkgo, for example, which shows that um, there's synergy between the different constituents with ginkgo, where if you uh, test uh, some different chemicals from ginkgo separately and then ginkgo as a whole, that the total effect from the ginkgo will be greater than a sum of the, the, the separate parts. So um, we, there's loads to unpick about how herbs are having their effects. And for example, lots of the effects we're going to probably find have to do with the interactions with, as we've said, the microbiome and uh, and what's going on directly within the gut where the, where the herbs get absorbed or, or have their actions. That's so fascinating, Marion, and it's something I didn't really quite think about when you unpack um, plant medicine, um, the kind of idea that certain components are, of course, beneficial for certain things, but the whole component can lead to other benefits too, and that kind of reminds me of um, the cannabis uh, plant and how each of its different chemicals and so many within it are still so undiscovered you know their kind of use and purpose that it has complete different effects some of you know from thc to cbd within the cannabis leaf and then cannabis as a whole so it's absolutely a fascinating area um do you have anything to comment it's a little bit off topic but um i don't know if you guys do anything with uh, the cannabis plant or have knowledge about it and can tell our listeners about the different components that um are within it well, we, uh, we, we don't do any research on, on cannabis, but um, as you've said, it's a really, really complex and interesting mm. uh, interesting plant. One of the other uh, interesting factors is the whole cannabinoid system, mm. which we now know there's actually quite a lot of other plants that uh, interact with that system. So there are other plants that uh, bind to CB2 receptors, for example, uh, echinacea being one example, mm. black Black pepper also has beta caryophyllene in it, which uh, which we know also interacts with the cannabinoid system. So, I think once that uh, area of research uh, gets going even more, I mean it's been going for kind of mm. a good twenty years or so so far. But once it get, get, gets going even more, we're going to find out a lot of more interesting stuff, and it's a really crucial system. 
Absolutely. I was at, um, I'm going to ask Viv to comment more about this because I know uh, she absolutely can. I was at a integrative oncology conference that I spoke at uh, with the Yes to Life charity a couple years ago. And there are so many charities around um, THC for cancer patients to help with their pain. And it's a very interesting area, the kind of qualities that are coming forward with the CBD research. So uh, Viv, could you comment more on this, please? Now, um, more, more from a physiological perspective, what I find really fascinating reading about this is, you know, as Marion said, you've got the cannabinoid uh, system of receptors in the body. From an evolutionary perspective, they're very, very similar to the vanilloid receptors within the body. And these are the receptors for chili and other plant active components. So what I find just really incredible is why our bodies evolved to have these systems right. if if plants weren't supposed to be such a fundamental part of our medicine and our holistic well-being um and yeah i i think there's just some fascinating research to be done um to continue understanding those sort of molecular pathways and what they're doing to the body i think that's an absolutely you know crucial point to make why do we have this makeup within our body systems if um, we're not using the things that complement it within nature so speaking of which are you aware of any hotspots of herbal research within the uk or practices where they are really um harnessing the power of plant medicines um that you can tell us about and then even on a more wider a global level, are there um, hotspots of research and practice um, that are ahead of England in the rest of Europe? I know doctors are far more equipped with skills around herbal medicine in places like Germany and France. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, a really big hotspot for uh, for herbal medicine research or just plant chemistry research is Kew Gardens. It's kind of would be one of my obvious obvious choices. You know, they've got huge uh, numbers of scientists working on, uh, on plant medicine uh, and plants generally. Um, and then other places in the UK are, are, are often universities where we've uh, where we've collaborated with researchers. So UCL uh, School of Pharmacy um, has a strong uh, plant medicine uh, department and, and other uh, other universities like Exeter, Southampton, and Northumbria um, are places that we, for example, have worked with. David, have you got anything to add on that? The rest of Europe, maybe. Um, oh, I, I guess I'm, I'm not so familiar with collaborations across Europe, but I mean, also to say that other parts of the world are um, so much more um, integrated in their medical mm. approaches. So research going on within India and China is, is world leading, but, but also the USA have quite an integrated um, med medicine um, approach. And um, so there are some fantastic researchers over in the U US and, and part of what we're doing at the moment is looking for more global collaborations in what we're doing. That's fantastic. And so if you were to hypothesize, or maybe you guys know because you've been in this game for so long, why do you think the UK are behind on this area? in terms of how it's integrated there's quite there's quite a sort of traditional snooty look your nose look down your nose at uh, herbal medicine and and it's kind of often been seen within the uk i think as, as quackery and, and and nonsense and and there's there's uh it's quite a, a difficult job to get over that um so a lot of people i think would shy away from it um i think that's one of the things that 
we're really passionate about uh, introducing young new uh, researchers at universities and, and bringing them on as interns um, to uh, encourage and excite a whole new generation of researchers. Um, as, as you said earlier, uh, your other European countries that are particularly good, are, you know, Germany and Switzerland have got really strong herbal medicine research backgrounds, and and then parts of Eastern Europe where where um, herb herbs are really important parts of the culture. For example, Russia's got a really strong mm-hmm. um, phytochemistry um, scene uh, as well. Sure. And uh, before we move on, for our young uh, enthusiastic listeners who may be tuning in, if they do want to get involved with herbal research with you and become an intern, how do they go about doing this? I mean, they can just reach out and um, contact us. I mean, we try and work with universities in all sorts of different ways. So, for example, you know, if if there's an undergrad student or if there's a, a medical student doing a Oh, I can't remember the intermission. We can take a year out. Is it an elective? No, maybe not. But the intercalated degree, yes. That's the one. You know, we, we try and work with universities in that way. If there's a student that's really passionate about, you know, learning more about herbs, you know, we, we can collaborate on, uh, you know, a project as part of the degree or, you know, occasionally we're able to sponsor right through to masters and phds but uh, always reach out first i wish i knew about that last year when i intercalated why didn't i know that this was a thing and i'm at bristol i feel yeah because oh, wow. I, I did an intercalated bsc i took a year out of medicine and i i moved back to london where my family is and i went to imperial to do medical humanities philosophy law and creative arts it was this very holistic combined degree and we actually got to go to Chelsea Physic Gardens and um, do a project where we become a tour guide uh, for the week and give a tour around the medicinal um, uh, gardens within Chelsea Physic and that was my favourite part of it. I can't say I loved the course in its entirety so I think I would have rather have done the whole plant medicine thing but hey all in the future. (laughs) Absolutely you've got plenty of time. (laughs) exactly um okay so moving on um could you tell us a little bit more about pucker as a business i'm so interested to hear about its ethical and sustainable stance sure so it's joe here it's probably worth outlining that pucker is a hindi word that means real authentic or genuine And this was really the type of organization our co-founders, Tim and Sebastian, wanted to create 20 years ago. So every one of our certified herbal products, whether it's a herbal tea or a supplement, is blended by herbal experts with the world's best organic practitioner-grade herbs. And these are both fairly and sustainably sourced from our various supply chains around the world, um, all backed by our, our, our leading herbal research that we've just been talking about. And I think it's really important just to outline how we have a net positive sustainability strategy. So it's about putting back more into environment or society than we take out. Mm -hmm. So a few years back, we looked at the the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So this is the world's collective call to action to end poverty and restore our planet's life support systems. Um, And PACA really wants to play its part. And we've actually evolved this now to a regenerative um, sustainability strategy. So, so just being 100% organic mm. isn't enough anymore. You have to actually actively put back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're a B Corp member in business to do good, using using business as a force for good. Um, we're a member of 1% for the planet, so 1% of our sales 
um, not our profit, our sales, goes back to environmental causes. Um, and this is really in our, our DNA, if you like, from the beginning. It's not an add-on. Um, and it feels very much alive amongst um, our staff at Pucker um, Herb House in Bristol, our HQ. I love that it's so entrenched within your business culture and it's not just tokenistic and an add-on. I'm doing my social responsibility bit um, and adding it on the end. It's absolutely incredible to really hear from a B Corp how, you know, through and through it is ethical and sustainable. So how do you become a B Corp? What are the steps? So basically that's um, part of our partnerships work and it's quite stringent requirements. Um, to look at um, how we treat um, both environment and people um, involved along the whole supply chain. So we very much think in terms of, of seed to shelf or crop to cup at pucker. Um, and it includes things like the gender pay gap. Um, it's not just about our farmers working across the world to grow our practitioner-grade herbs. It's how are we looking after our staff in Bristol. Um, and it's really looking um, in a really holistic way at the whole supply chain. So a few years back, we did a carbon mapping exercise to look at where our biggest carbon footprint was. And it's, it's a bit of a surprise, really. It wasn't our entire agricultural supply chain. So all the farmers in 50 different countries around the world growing our herbs, it was from our customers boiling their kettles to make a cup of tea, um, which was quite a surprise. And that led to something, um, a partnership with Do Nation and also Good Energy. So we came up with something called the Smart Boil Challenge, um, to show that most people on average boil twice as much water as they need to when they're making a cup of tea. Um, so that was something we very much worked with our customers and members mm. of the public, encouraging them to switch to a renewable energy supplier. And then all the staff at Pucker had to sign up to a donation challenge, um, a personal pledge to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and it sort of went viral, if you like. Everyone got really engaged and shared photos and posts about what they were doing. Um, but overall, being organic is, is a big part of us contributing to the climate solution. So um, some research has showed that if half of all the farms in Europe converted to organic within the next 10 years, it would um, cut almost a quarter of all of the EU greenhouse gas emissions. That's, yeah, um, what a statistic. Really powerful. Really powerful. And I absolutely love what you're saying about how even the staff join in on the pledge to reduce carbon footprint and whatever the theme is around sustainability that you're running with at the time, because it just shows how powerful it is that it's not just you um, as a central organisation with Puka preaching to the public about reducing emissions and, you know, being more sustainable and environmental friendly. You're actually getting your staff to practice what you preach centrally. And I think you know, GP practices could learn from that. I know I've spoken to some doctors that tell me that, um, you know, they all do a steps challenge within their GP practice and all the nurses and everyone, all the allied healthcare professionals within it are joining in and doing a steps challenge to promote physical activity. But I just think it's such a powerful thing and um, should be done more widespread where, you know, staff are joining in with the central beliefs of a system and it's not so... Um, you know, fragmented. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about how um, else this is translated to the staff? Um, are there any well-being things you do with them? And um, yeah, how does how else does the brand promote sustainability? I, I know that Sebastian, um, no, not Sebastian, sorry, Ewan was telling me that even 
the string on the tea bag is organic. Um, so yes, could you just comment on that? Yeah, so as I said, it really is embedded in our DNA. So we've just reviewed our sustainable packaging policy, um, but we pioneered making sure the tea envelope was able to be recycled along with paper recycling. Um, and we are 100% organic as well. Um, but just going back to staff well-being, um, it's really lovely. Each person in the company gets four days a year to volunteer as a like-minded organisation, and that can be anything you choose, uh, which when you've got 130 employees really adds up to sizable volunteering contribution. Um, each person is also given a well-being fund and a development fund um, to invest as they choose for their own well-being and development. And as far as um, education, each member of staff also receives um, extensive herbal education, digital um, and interactive. Um, the interactive is proving a bit challenging at the moment. It's, it's pretty much all digital. Mm. Um, so about uh, 22 22% of Pucker's employees have a further qualification in, in herbal, um, traditional medicine, or, or phytopharmacy. So pretty educated employees anyway, but we make sure that everyone, even if they're not involved in working with herbs, um, they get basic herbal education through our Pucker Life Academy. Wow, that honestly is so unique. Um, I've really never heard of an organisation that has such good care for their staff what an amazing non-toxic work environment it's refreshing to hear um so joe could you tell our listeners a bit about uh Puka life academy i know Nutri tank are very passionate about it and we've got some of your educational materials on our website and we'd love to work further with you on educational things so introduce us to what Puka life academy is Sure. So Pug has always done herbal education, but last year we launched a brand new CPD accredited platform. Um, so this has been written by our in-house team, so Simon Ewan and um, Viv Marion. Um, and it very much is blending the biomedical view with the traditional view, which again, I think is, is quite unique. Um, so it's aimed at our employees, as I mentioned, everyone has to take part. Um, I should mention our, our bonus is, is linked to the herbal education goals as well. Um, so the bit of a carrot and a bit of a stick there. But there's 14 interactive modules um, looking at everything from women's health to musculoskeletal health, as well as in-depth um, look at herbs like turmeric, one of our real hero herbs. And then this is matched with face-to-face -face sessions, um, interactive herbal workshops, and we're really proud that over 2,000 modules have been completed since launch. Um, one of these modules is on Ayurveda, which is part of Pucker's founding philosophy. Mm. Um, so that's very much how we educate everyone but the public, um, because unfortunately, due to current legislation mm. about health claims, mm. um, members of the public who aren't practitioners um, or involved in selling our products um, can't access this, but we, we do have something called the Pucker Collective on our website, sure. um, and over 100,000 people have, have signed up to that, and that is about educating um, members of the public who want to um, be empowered to improve their health, whether it's sleep, digestion, um, energy, uh, so those are our two main vehicles really, the Pucker Life Academy and the Collective. Fantastic. And uh, just to backtrack to um, the herbal education, herbal education research team, how is it actually organised within Pucker? Who is involved in the herbal education and research team? Oh yeah, I, I don't mind just answering. It's, it's mainly us. Um, so Pucker is an organisation of about one hundred and thirty people within our office, and our herbal team 
I suppose, I think there's 12 people. So there's two doing education, Joe and Holly. There's Marion and myself doing research. We've also got a lawyer and other sort of um, pharma, pharmaceutical specialists and product development specialists within that team. So quite small, uh, but we've got a lot of diverse expertise. Um, and, you know, we, we sit at the heart of that, that, that business mechanism, if you like, to, to spread the, the herbal love across pucker. I love that. Spread the herbal love. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely brilliant. So um, it would be really helpful to our listeners who don't know very much about herbal medicine uh, to clarify some terms. So could you just explain what exactly a medical herbalist is and tell us whether you can subspecialise within medical herbalism if it's the same as medical um, if it's the same as medicine for, as okay, wait, let me say this again. Whether it's the same as traditional medicine. Yeah, sure, I can answer that. So, a medical herbalist is is really just someone who prescribes herbs and dietary and lifestyle advice um, to patients or clients uh, to help improve their health. Um, to use uh, the medical in front of medical herbalist, um, a person needs to have undergone an accredited training course, um, which historically has been a, a full degree. Uh, and that includes study of clinical medicine, herbs, obviously, diagnostics, and, and always 500 hours of clinical practice, either with um, a supervisor or, or within a training clinic. Um, and then uh, in terms of Specialising, and you can sub-specialise. You don't necessarily need to, uh, but in herbal medicine, uh, lots of herbalists end up treating the same sorts of conditions, um, whether that's through um, their own personal interest or doing extra training uh, through seminars and, and training courses, um, or, or just which patients have turned up to see them. I mean, often you find if you do uh, really well treating a few patients with one particular condition, work will spread and you end up seeing only people with that. <laughs> yes, of course. And um, so, Marion, I know you're interested in women's health, which is, you know, why I ask about the subspecialisation. So could you tell us a little bit about your work with uh, medical herbalism research and women's health? Um, and Viv as well, if this is your area of interest too. Sure. So um, really my interest in women's health stems from uh, partly the fact that it's sort of women's hormonal problems specifically are really poorly treated often uh, by conventional medicine. Um, it's something that there hasn't been a lot of research historically, um, largely because uh, I, I guess in the like 18th and 19th century, most most men were the ones doing the research and, and felt that any women with uh, with hormonal problems were just hysterical. Um, but uh, you can really have great effects uh, for things like pre PMT and menopausal issues with with herbs. I see. Um, yeah, and then I guess Viv, perhaps you could talk a little bit more about the Shatavri research. So Shatavris are. On, on known female herb, um, which I definitely use in my clinic for, for lots of women's problems, particularly menopause. Could you pronounce that again? Shatavri. Okay, thank you. I just really need to pause and run and get something. I don't know if you want to ask Joe a question, but I've just read an amazing book and I, I just want She's gone to find some extra, uh, extra research. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I can I just I can just jump in and say something from from the perspective of an Ayurvedic practitioner. 
um, which is um, for the women's health problems outlined by Marion, that the role of diet, herbs and lifestyle can be so supportive. Um, so in my own practice as an Ayurvedic practitioner, I've noticed that, that women who come into their menopause years um, chronically stressed um, pretty pretty much always have a harder menopause than a woman who's, who's learned to um, balance stress levels. So even just supporting a woman in reducing her levels of stress coming up to menopause can be so supportive in, in improving her experience. That's absolutely fascinating to hear and it all comes down to that preventative medicine um, you know and the power of it that can really help you and prepare your body for something in the future. Um, So before I go back to asking about medical herbalism with um, Viv, could you tell me Joe, a little bit and our listeners about what is Ayurveda? How was it actually defined? Yes, of course. So Ayurveda is a Sanskrit word. Uh, It means the science of life or the science of well-being. Um, It's around 5,000 years old um, and it's the the world's oldest holistic medical system, um, originated in the Indus Valley region of India, but it's widely practiced today all over the world. And it really, um, it's like a user's manual. A baby isn't born with a user's manual, but if they were, um, it, it offers guidance into what is best for you to allow you to fulfill and reach your potential um, physically, mentally, emotionally. And it's through finding out your individual mind-body type, um, your, your doshic constitution, it's called, that then helps to guide you in what is the best diet for you, um, what is the best lifestyle for you, um, what herbs can be most beneficial to you. Um, so Ayurveda is very much part of Pucker's founding philosophy. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the greatest thing it's brought to Pucker is it, it teaches this profound respect for, for nature and the natural world. And also that our individual health is, is intimately connected to the health of our family and colleagues, communities, um, and more broadly, the health of our society and our planet. You can't look at individual health in isolation. Um, so this idea that our individual well-being and the health of the planet are intimately linked is is very much part of um, Pucker's founding philosophy. And um, with Ayurveda, how does the research side of things work? Because I know it's such an ancient learning and like you say, it's the oldest holistic uh, medical system. But how does the research kind of work with showing its benefits? I think that's an amazing question, oh, and research. I'm so sorry, Joe. I didn't see you. Um, yeah, it's a great question, and one that's just it goes back to what we were talking about at the start. Mm-hmm. It's one that is just so difficult. That how do you fit that ancient, holistic, multifaceted medical system through our modern day lens? Um, and Marion and I were big fans of systematic review. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been working on systematic reviews. Um, and, and what is nice is there's there's a number of sets of guidance on if you're doing systematic review around Ayurveda, for example, um, you know you know it gives you technical guidance on on how to do that really fully and how to even search in the right places for information. So so often you know people are doing systematic review, for example, in in Ayurvedic practice or herbal medicine, but they'll only look on PubMed. Well, you know that's not sufficient. You want to be looking on Indian and even Chinese 
another Asian specialist databases. So, um, yeah, always going back to the research is hugely complex and problematic, but I, I think it's a fascinating challenge to unlock. And, uh, yeah, so the way Marion and I approach our literature reviews and systematic reviews is trying to, within them to be as holistically as uh, holistically robust as possible. I really like that and um, holistic through and through is what is so important with this kind of realm and the fact that it hasn't been so easy to slot it into the modern biomedicine, traditional medicine uh, lens. So like you were saying within your systematic reviews, you're looking at all these databases and I think what we really need and what I hope to do through this podcast is to bring to light where people can look. Uh, for this type of research like you mentioned the other databases so joe i'd like for you to comment on that a little bit more as well oh i can't resist jumping in because if you look a bit more broadly um ayurveda is obsessed with um, digestion not only what we digest but what we can absorb and it very much sees food as medicine there's there's no division between the two and if the if the diet is right there's no need for medicine and if the diet's wrong medicine won't work so that's a sort of old ayurveda proverb if you like um so digestion is seen at the heart of health and healing and when i studied this 20 years ago it just felt a bit bit out there really and i'm so gratified as an ayurvedic practitioner over the last 15 years, if you like, this explosion of research into the gut microbiome mm. and the gut-brain axis has really um, validated so much of the Ayurvedic view that so many problems, even something like arthritis, can have its rheumatoid arthritis, can start with a faulty digestive system. And it may take 10 years for um, a problem to develop or 20 years or, or a year. But essentially, if our digestion is functioning well, then our overall health is, is likely to be good. But if we have digestive issues, um, then there will be problems down the line. Yes, that is absolutely incredible. Um, I hadn't thought about how the emergence of the gut microbiome field, um, and although in its infancy, you know, so much has come out of its research and, you know, really does cement such ancient, ancient practices like you describe. Um, so just to find out a bit more about being an Ayurveda practitioner, I was talking to Ewan about issues around herbal regul um, issues around regulation when it comes to being a herbal medicine practitioner. In the same way, there are issues around regulation when it comes to being a nutritionist. It's not a protected title. So what is it with um, Ayurveda uh, being an Ayurveda practitioner? Are these issues still um, apparent? So if, if you're a practitioner, you can't obviously call yourself a doctor, um, but essentially you're allowed to recommend diet, lifestyle, advice, and, and herbal prescriptions to people. Um, and you can be an influencer. So unlike Pucker, um, we cannot speak to members of the public about the, um, the health benefits of our herbs due to existing health claims regulations. But the wonderful freedom of being an independent practitioner is you can blog, you can influence, um, and you can play a massive part in educating the public on uh, the holistic view of, of how diet, lifestyle, and, and herbs can really enhance um, health and well-being. And I'm pretty passionate about education and quote Nelson Mandela when he says that education is the most powerful uh, weapon we have to change the world. And I think uh, independent practitioners have a, a, a really powerful role in that. 
totally. And so what is the training to become an independent Ayurveda practitioner? Can someone, um, like I was kind of alluding to, do a really uh, short crash course and still call them an Ayurveda, themselves an Ayurveda practitioner uh, because it's unregulated? Or um, whereas someone could do a more kind of rigorous course for longer, how does it work to do the training? Oh, yes. Sorry, yes. Um, so I did a three-year BSc with an Indian university in the middle of London, which was a very interesting experience. It was an independent university that had split from Middlesex University because uh, they wanted it to be more spiritual. Um, it's since closed down. And as far as I'm aware, there's no Ayurveda degree left in the UK. Um, you can do Ayurveda as part of other integrated um, medicine degrees. Um, and if you're really devoted, you could go to India and do the seven-year BAMS, um, and then you can call yourself a doctor in India. But you've hit the nail on the head. People are doing um, short courses and calling themselves Ayurveda lifestyle practitioners or Ayurveda advisors, if you like, Ayurveda well-being experts. Um, and I don't have a problem with that as long as people are honest that they they haven't done you know, a three-year degree in it. Mm. Um, Ayurveda can be very simple and um, people can really help out. If you've done a month-long course, you can still contribute. But I think you've just got to be honest that, that you haven't done a degree in it. Um, and I'm just delighted that there are um, some offerings out there because a lot of people who are um, medically trained or reflexologists or other practitioners want to learn more about Ayurveda and it's frustrating that there isn't an accredited, accredited degree left in the UK um, and there's a freedom if you like to pick and choose from the short courses available to build up your skills mm. um, to enhance your existing practice. Mm. That's very interesting and I, I like how open-minded you are to those who have done the short courses and diplomas and not the rigorous degrees because like you say you know people are very busy if they already have a prime job role like a reflexologist or a doctor maybe they don't have time to do such a rigorous degree but I guess it's about knowing your limitations and when to refer on to the experts who have done so um so um moving on I want to jump back to Viv who was going to share some very interesting insights from a book she's read uh in the context of women's health with what with what we were talking about before it was such a fantastic book. I've just finished and I had to go and grab it from my kitchen. It's Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. In fact, she's, she's written a series of books um, about the role of women and the sort of the, the historic place of women in society. But this book particularly goes into some of the medical detail. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with some of it, for example. It, it, it exposes the whole bias um, between men and women right through science and right through research not just in terms of the research that has been done, i.e. we know all about male symptoms of heart attacks, but what about female symptoms, but actually the massive gaps in data that exist, there's lots of things. For example, you know, Joe was talking about, you know, the impact of um, the menopause on women in the workplace. You know, there's whole gaps and reams of data that's not even, um, not even um, collected. So we, we just really don't know. Mm. Um, so I just think this is so fascinating it really opened my eyes and made me question the research that we are doing and is is that going to expose any biases and how do we do that in an equitable way um, so yeah th this book has really inspired me Invisible Women and I, I think every woman in medicine and science should read mm. it um, because 
yeah, suddenly um, you, you'll just suddenly become so aware that you'll be looking at research papers. For example, in sports, you go a long way to find any um, evidence, you know, any research that's been done in the area of sports science that has been done on a female team. You know, it it, it talks about this, you know, sort of model archetypal male body, and uh, you know, extrapolates our world of medicine from that. So. It's the most amazing read. I am so glad you brought this to the table because, I mean, this is a girl power episode after all. And um, it's very much something that I'm passionate about when it comes to the world of healthcare and the world of healthcare. And I recorded a podcast which will come out before yours um, for our listeners who are yeah, who are listeners who are tuning in, it, this podcast that I'm referring to will be already out for you. And I um, interviewed a group of BAME female doctors about issues with uh, gender and ethnic diversity within the structures of the NHS and the structures of research. And it's just absolutely, uh, it's just absolutely shocking some of the statistics that they were reading off to me. Um, I'm going to get it wrong, but if you just imagine there is a disparity in this spectrum. So a uh, black female doctor is at the bottom of uh, the, of payment within the NHS, and then you've got a white female doctor, and then you've got your white male doctor, and it's still going on, there's still inequality, and it's just absolutely extraordinary um, that we're still fighting these issues that have been so long-standing. And, you know, I speak, they were, the doctors were a generation above me, and then I speak to my generation of my medical student colleagues who are nearly qualified and the same issues are still persisting. There's not been great enough change yet. And so we still really need to open this conversation, especially when it comes to women of science. And uh, during my history of medicine module within the medical humanities degree last year, we learned about all the biases and um, you know how it was it was men that were in control of all the narratives within the history of medicine and so you really have to take a step back before you just solely believe everything um, that has been written down and it does make you think maybe there is so much yet to be discovered around women's health because that evidence base just hasn't been there for a long enough period of time because um, you know of the sexist issues that have existed within um, high professions like science and uh, business and whatnot so yeah we've got to still keep fighting for it and um, very much fly the flag so, and there, there are some amazing initiatives around and um, I'm a huge fan of Wikipedia and there's I, I think the group is called um, Women in Red and it's all about prom- you know, putting and, and updating Wikipedia pages around famous women to raise the profile of women through Wikipedia, and they do some really amazing and radical work. Yeah. Um, I was trying to think of another example, but it's gone from my mind. Yeah, really topical to the COVID crisis is the uh, the news that came out a few weeks ago that you know everyone's sat at home, aren't we? Just working from home now, but um, the 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 the, um, the majority of scientists publishing papers um were men uh, and journal editors and, and publishers and notice you know we, we're getting submissions from a lot of men and we're our female colleagues um so i'm part of a twitter group it's an education technology group really that, that supports women called femedtech and femedtech amazingly wrote um wrote an open sort of news article and a call to action to all journals to ask them 
where are you supporting females publishing during this COVID crisis? So there, there's just mm. so much passion out there and so many great activities um, that, like you say, are starting to raise this awareness and, you know, things will start to change. You're so right. This COVID period has brought to light, um, you know, issues between uh, BAME health inequalities and issues between um, um, gender inequality. And for instance, even when I'm asking at the moment, these incredible female doctors, um, nutritionists, uh, who you name it, to write us a blog for our website, I'm completely understanding. You've got childcare, take your time. I'm not putting a deadline on you but I want your voice to be heard and for the blog to go on our website. And they need that time. They're balancing so much more. And yeah, it's really important we allow that. So I'm very much in agreement with you there. So um, back to herbal medicine. Um, I want to ask you about how herbal medicine is able to sit alongside conventional Western medicine and how Pukka kind of tries to marry the two and weave itself in with um you know traditional things well i guess um you know there's a i'll start again no worries <laughs> like uh, as, as we kind of reiterated throughout you know herbal medicine is a is a holistic approach that puts the emphasis on the on wellness and, and optimum health it's it's not just about suppressing a symptom um, but working out the root cause for something and uh, for, for why there's poor health and, and I guess in in some situations herbal medicine can can complement conventional medicine in others it, it's going to be preferable um, uh, due to uh, lower lower risk or, or better efficacy and and then in other cases it's going to be wholly inadequate but um, I think we need to get um, herbal practitioners and uh, medical practitioners working together a lot more and uh, trying to figure out the best way forward for, for a more integrated system uh, of medicine just for the benefit of, of patients overall really. And how do you think we can do this? Is there anything that PUC is doing to make it all more integrated or other charities, organisations that are working on bringing it all together more? For, mm. for medical uh, students, really, in, in herbs and nutrition, which I guess is something that NutriTrack is really passionate about as well. Um, uh, you know, we do, there are cross, starting to be more and more crossovers. For example, there's a lot more GPs now who have undergone secondary training in herbal medicine and, and now practicing as herbalists. Um, they, they kind of cross up a lot more regularly. And as you mentioned earlier on, Ali, about um, doctors in places like Germany um, and France do prescribe herbs um, to their patients. So I guess really it's mainly about education. Absolutely. And so um, whoever wants to take this, Marion or Viv, could you tell us a little bit about the current projects at Pukka that are pertaining to herbal research and education and Joe chip in whenever? Yeah, I was in answer to the question before as well. The other, the other massive stumbling block we have is funding. Yeah. Um, you know, we are really keen to develop an evidence base around herbs in a really robust way, and there are no, in the UK anyway, no forums really for external funding. And um, so, yeah, if you were going to involve your professional medical bodies and your healthcare bodies, you know, you you would need you would need evidence to go. And present your arguments to them and that's fair enough so that yeah that's one of the challenges we have 
Um, so, yeah, within Pucker, so we've got, I think, 11 projects underway, um, right from PhD studentships to a master's. Um, unfortunately, lots of it's on pause at the moment. And, um, yeah, right through from large-scale, longer studies through to, you know, pieces of student work. Um, so we've got something hugely exciting just starting up with Manchester Metropolitan University, who have got an amazing nutrition department. And the um, students that Man Met get involved in the catering within the university and do lots of community education. It's, it's an amazing group there called Met Munch. And um, we've got a student there at Manchester Met who's going to do a little master's project looking at some of the sensory aspects of our tea and starting to sort of open up that area, almost the psychological benefits of tea, you know, does colour of the tea make a difference, does the aroma of tea make a difference? Um, so that's just an example of a really small, simple project, really, um, that could be hugely exciting and, you know, lead on to further work and a further collaboration. Um, so, yeah, we, we look, look to do research projects in all shapes and sizes, really to work with as many partners and students as we can, as Marion said at the start, to grow that next generation really and to, to seed some ideas um, and hopefully we can then work through over the years to influencing policy more influencing education more and you know hopefully influencing the ability to have whole, whole streams of funding to look at more integrated medical approach mm. i love the emphasis you lay down on empowering students and the next generation i just think it's so amazing that you guys uh, put so much energy into that and of course that's where my passion lies with the bottom-up grassroots approach and really getting in early with people who haven't really begun their careers yet so yeah really brilliant um does anyone else want to comment uh on all of this yeah i just guess looking at, at what, how we're trying to educate on herbal research we, we obviously weave in our, our herbal research results into everything we do um but some specific projects that come to mind, we've got a, a tea box down at the Eden Project in Cornwall, uh, where members of the public can engage with all our teas and, and talk to the narrators, they're called, about the herbs and learn more about um, their health benefits. Uh, we also have got a partnership with the Natural History Museum and run a, a similar festival there somewhere on the lawn. Um, and then looking more at sort of health practitioner, we're very much working with nutritional therapists, functional medicine, um, and we've got a partnership with the College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. So we're really working to change conversations about health with the College of Medicine. Um, so we supported a social prescription event last year, um, sponsored an award there. We're, we're big supporters of the social prescription at Pucker. Um, and if herbs can be seen as part of the social prescription agenda, that would be a big step forward. Um, and we also co-hosted a conference on before we really need antibiotics. Uh, what healthy alternatives can we recommend? Um, so I don't need to say anything about the, the rise of antimicrobial resistance and what an issue this is. But this conference was aimed at just um, opening up the conversation about reducing overprescription antibiotics, as well as identifying new herbal treatments, um, such as the herb andrographis. Was that at Chelsea Physic Gardens? Yes, it was. I know, I was so gutted. I, yes, tried to do too much. Um, and I was invited to speak there because um, I'd, I'd met Wendy uh, through the tour that I did with Imperial last year and told her about Nutritank. So I was invited to join you guys. And then 
medicine called so I couldn't make it but it sounded like the most fantastic event um, and I do agree it's just showing how you know herbs can really complement modern and traditional medicines that are needed for serious infections but we need to very much nourish our bodies once we've kind of had that intervention that can you know um, as we all know wipe out a lot of the healthy bacteria in our gut so um also with yeah what i wanted to bring up was the college of medicine um it's fantastic that you are aligned with such a brilliant charity that puts integrative medicine at the forefront um they are uh, michael dixon and college of medicine are one of the reasons that um i've been so empowered with this movement as i met michael in my first year of medicine and um, you know, he made he saw something in me and made me the national student nutrition lead for College of Medicine from there. And we've really enjoyed speaking at their conferences. And I just think it's such a collaborative space. And it's fantastic that all these dots are being joined up with industry like you guys and the education side of you guys as well, as well as uh, medical practitioners and medical students, etc. Um, so speaking of conferences, um, for our conference that we held um, on food, nutrition and health uh, in March earlier this year, just a week before um, all conferences were banned due to COVID, we got right in there at Royal Society of Medicine. We were very lucky. We weren't allowed to shake hands or hug any of the guests or speakers, but still uh, we were able to go through our conference and you very kindly supplied us with your turmeric pukka tea. Um, one of my favourites and so I just wanted to uh, have you explain to our audience some of the health benefits of turmeric and the history of turmeric as it is spoken about the entire time. Well, I think Jo should kick off that one really with the tradition, tr traditional basis of the golden goddess. I, I, I'd be glad to. So um, turmeric is about as old as Ayurveda, it's, it's a cousin um, relation of ginger. Um, and it's very much known as the golden goddess in Ayurveda due to its um, manifold supportive and protective effects. Um, uh, and it's such a strong supporter of the digestive fire, as it's known in Ayurveda, the digestive function. So it's easy to see why it plays such a central role in Ayurvedic health and healing. Um, so not just digestive health, but supporting inflammation in the body, um, especially inflammatory skin conditions. Um, one of its names, um, every herb has about 20 different names in Ayurveda and Sanskrit, but one of its other names is that which cleanses the skin. Um, so it's a great wound healer, and something that's really interesting on my course was the research showing that you can mix turmeric with honey or aloe vera and use for diabetic boils and non-healing ulcers, oh. um, and you can get really good results that way. And it pretty much is the equivalent of a plaster or an elastoplast in rural India. If uh, someone cuts themselves, they will, and they don't have plasters in, in the villages, they will just rub turmeric into the cut. And um, I'll, I'll hand over to Viv and Marion to build on, on why that was a really sensible thing to do. But from the yoga perspective, it also helps stretch the ligaments. Um, so it's really central to the practice of yoga. Uh, so I can't overestimate the importance of, of turmeric in both the, the Ayurvedic and the yogic tradition. So if Vival Marion wants to comment on anything more? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately uh, it's really anti-inflammatory. So we know that it, uh, curcumin uh, it has an anti-inflammatory effect on the body. 
traditionally, obviously, its uh, main benefits were for digestion and, and kind of more and more as time goes on, we think that perhaps some of the effects uh, on the inflammation in the body may be actually through the digestive system. So having, a, having an, uh, an interaction either with the microbiome or the, the gut wall layer there. Uh, and um, although there's been this huge focus on curcumin as the, as the main benefit, um, we also know that some of the other constituents within turmeric are going to be beneficial for health. So the essential oils, the turmerones and turmeric have also been found to independently have their own anti-inflammatory activity. Uh, and as I spoke about before, this idea of synergy, um, it, it's likely that there's some kind of synergy between the curcumin and the, and the essential oil and perhaps other, um, uh, other elements within the, within the turmeric. Um, sort of some studies have shown that whole turmeric um, has a better effect than, uh, than the isolated curcumin alone. Um, uh, and so we, we did um, some research with UCL looking at the quality of, um, of our, our holistic turmeric uh, to show that um, the extraction process we use and the, and the high quality sourcing um, uh, and great relationship we have with our suppliers leads to um, a, a product that's got really good levels of curcumin, but then also really high levels of this turmeric essential oils that, that may also be contributing to the effect. And on to you, Viv. Yeah, just to add on to that, Marion and I just actually completed a piece of research that we said we are keen on our systematic reviews, but we actually, in this case, did a meta-review, which is a review of systematic reviews, so it gets a bit crazy, and we thought, hey, let's do one on turmeric. And then what happened? We were absolutely inundated with numbers of systematic reviews. And whilst we whittled them down through our eligibility criteria, because we wanted uh, reviews that had looked at turmeric as an intervention for any physical disease, we got down to 65 systematic reviews. It was the most horrendous piece of analysis I've ever had to do. Uh, there was such a body of, of work there. And yeah. And what is also always so fascinating is when you see that the modern day science reflects some of the traditional use of the herb. Um, so um, a lot of the evidence around the use of turmeric is for osteoarthritis. There are some for its use in skin conditions. And you know, another area that looked promising for turmeric was around um, diabetes and low blood sugars. So yeah, it's, it's a piece of work we're working on at the moment. But I was really surprised that the just the, not the number of clinical trials, but the number of systematic reviews of clinical trials that was out there just for turmeric. Really fascinating piece of work it was. Yeah, it really has just swept the world with, you know, it's, it's kind of health qualities and into the wellness industry as well. And of course, the research industry. Um, so within these reviews that you're reading and these clinical trials, what is the form that is being given to patients with these chronic diseases? Um, what is the form of turmeric that's being given to them? So is it uh, a supplement or is it through food? Is it um, including the other components other than curcumin? Just tell us a little bit more about its delivery. I think it's funny, it's everything you've just said. Um, and that's one of the challenges that Mary and I have had in terms of interpreting the results. Um, there's a lot of turmeric that is just given us the whole herb uh, in a capsule, for example. There are other dietary supplements where the curcumin alone has been extracted. Um, and that's almost going down that medical model, isn't it? What's that active compound within that herb that's going to have the effect? I think what's, what's fascinating, and I think what's come out of our review, 
is different medical effects potentially from different formulations. Wow. So the curcumin alone uh, might be doing one thing, but actually it's the whole powder that seems to be more anti-inflammatory. But there just needs to be a whole lot of research to really examine that hypothesis in a lot more detail. Um, so right from, from the supplements right through to um, dietary trials where, yeah. where they've shown that a meal of curry you know, dosed with five grams of turmeric can actually have beneficial cardiac effects almost instantly. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's quite interesting nutrition studies as well, looking at uh, sort of putting, putting lots of turmeric in your diet. And then when I go out and speak to students, I'll say, go out and have a curry a week. It's probably one of the best things you can do for your body. Get a real super dose of spices down you. Wow. And this really leads me on well to my next question, and that is... I follow a lot of dietitians and doctors in the nutrition and holistic healthcare world who say that um, for good nutrition and holistic care to be accessible for all, that people should just focus on trying to have a whole foods diverse diet uh, where they can um, obtain all the nutrients and herbs and spices from um, this diet rather than taking supplements. So I kind of wanted to ask what Pucker's view is on this considering you do um, make a lot of supplements and ones I know I've got, um, I've had a lovely freebie from you guys before in one of the College of Medicine's gift bags of your turmeric supplements. What is the kind of balance between the whole food diet approach that is inexpensive and the supplement approach around herbs and spices that is more expensive and less accessible is there a deeper benefit with one um, rather than the other on this balance between supplements and whole food diets excluding vitamin d which is you know cemented in the guidelines that the uk population need to take between the months of october and march joe or marion would you like to comment on it give your stance on um, the Ayurveda take on this? 
Yeah, I completely echo what Marion says about about the dosage issue. Um, it'd be hard to, to eat some of these herbs in the diet to get the desired therapeutic effects. Um, and at Pucka, we're all about, it's, I sort of think about it as a, the holy triangle or the holy trinity of diet, herbs and lifestyle. So we're alongside herbal advice um, for our supplements. We're always going to be talking about diet and lifestyle to support someone, quite often um, tailored to their Ayurvedic mind-body type or dosha. Um, and just thinking about the busyness of life with, with the best intentions, we, we know we're meant to get five a day, but we also know it's nearer 10 a day, really. And um, I was really inspired by um, Tim Spector's work with the Human Gut Project recently. And he uh, highlighted the diversity issue in that many people are getting um, five a day. They're succeeding there, but it's the same five fruit or Mm. Um, or veg each week so they might be focusing on carrots potatoes apples bananas and peas and that is their repertoire with a few variations and tim spector's point is for a flourishing gut biome we need to be having 30 different herbs and spices and fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds so plant-based foods each week so if you have avocado and peas on monday you can't count that towards your list for the rest of the week and taking um, supplements can be an incredibly helpful way to support that in a busy week when you know you're not going to hit your target of, of 30 different plant foods each week. And so just to play devil's advocate with that, because I just hear this kind of, um, I hear the two narratives all the time with my work with Nutritank, the kind of those that are against marrying any supplements with the diet besides vitamin D and iron when you need it. Um, and those practitioners and doctors and whatever other allied healthcare professionals that are for adding it in a bit, how do we make it accessible for you know the NHS world where um, healthcare is free and um, supplements are expensive? How do we kind of make it accessible and applicable for all then? I think what you're saying then is a question of access, isn't yeah. it? Um, there are different strategies for, you know, uh, you know, passing dietary supplements through different regulatory channels. Um, so, for example, for one of our herbs, Andrographis, we just completed a feasibility clinical study with, with GP surgeries through Southampton. And, uh, you know, that, that was the first stage in that clinical process, really. Um, to to test adoption did patients want to take the herb did the doctors want to prescribe it and the answer was yes um, as an alternative for antibiotics for um, upper respiratory tract infections so um, there are processes by which you know herbal supplement manufacturers can um, you know develop claims and and, you know get the regulatory dossiers together um, it's just hugely expensive. I mean, you'll talk about pharmaceutical scale funding, sure. um, which, which you know, is a challenge for a very small company like Pucker. But uh, yeah, our companies do do it, and you know, we do we do consider that approach for our supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know that that way they can can be prescribed. But uh, at the moment, as, as Joe was saying, we're very much about working with with customers and members of the public about. You know, being a little bit aware about their own health mm-hmm. and what they need in terms of their diet, and if they can't access the diet, you know, the supplements there for a bit of a boost. Um, yeah. Sure. And um, Viv, I'm going to keep you. So, when um, when we're talking about having these herbs and spices through a meal, like say a curry, 
What it, and you know putting turmeric and eating it through a curry. What are the kind of differences in absorption between having it through food than having it through a supplement? And what have you noticed for like, the most salient findings are from the systematic review you're doing? Yeah, so the review that we did looked at medical outcomes. So we, we were looking at outcomes like scores of osteoarthritis, uh, blood sugars, for example, in metabolic syndrome. Um, so that review actually didn't address the bioavailability. Um, but actually, it's an area that we are going to develop a program of research around that exact question, you know, how, how does turmeric become available in different formats? And we're partly going to do that um, with Reading University on, on a master's project um, to apply turmeric in a capsule, um, maybe as a tea, maybe yeah. as a gummy or a sweet, um, and to see in their, their gut microbe mo- model mm. of the gut, um, you know, which one is more preferentially fermented. Um, so I, I think um, it's an interesting question and, yeah. and something we're going to address. But in terms of the literature that does exist, in terms of the studies that have looked at eating, say, one food containing five grams of turmeric, you can see turmeric metabolites within the blood serum, you know, several hours after that meal. Um, but then the body is obviously very good at getting rid of things. And after seven or eight hours, those levels mm. have gone back down. So you, when you take the supplement or have a curry meal, you've got that little window of activity where um, metabolites are floating around the body and having their effects. But it's an area, you know, we would like to understand a lot more about because I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you are addressing that very important area of bioavailability. And I look very forward to hearing about your findings. Um, So just uh, to kind of help our listeners, are there any resources around, um, you know, getting the right dosage through cooking with herbs and spices if you don't want to take a supplement to kind of reap the rewards and benefits of something like turmeric um, to know how much to use when cooking? and other herbs and spices? Um, I guess just thinking about turmeric, and um, I used to run Ayurvedic uh, cooking workshops. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, with these herbs and spices, be guided by your gut. Um, yeah. what, what do you fancy in your food? For one thing, there's no point cooking extensively with a herb or a spice if you just don't fancy Yeah, that. it doesn't have um, to be prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's yeah, really, really trust your, your gut wisdom. And um, when, when you're cooking, some spices have um, fat-soluble components you like, and some have water-soluble components. So you can take the same um, herb or, or spice and fry it in a little bit of ghee or coconut oil at the beginning to help extract the fat-soluble component. And then you're adding your dal or your your, your rice or whatever you're cooking. And then when you've got the water, you can add a bit more of the spice um, and then you're getting a bit of the the water-soluble components. Mm. So you're just making sure that you're you're getting as much out of that herb as you can. Um, I always used to teach you use organic spices um, as fresh as you can. So if there's something in your spice rack that's coming on for five years old, um, my mother-in-law's got some spices that are about 25 years old. um, So I quietly replenish her stocks when I go and visit. But, But yeah, as fresh as possible, organic. Um, and and let your your gut wisdom guide you in which spices you fancy, yeah. And am I right in saying um, that it's just a well-known thing that to help the absorption and bioavailability of turmeric within your gut, you need black pepper to um, assist it. Are there any other incidences with herbs and spices where you need, that you can just give examples to our audience where you need something else to help 
not necessarily a specific incidence, but um, black pepper helps the absorption of everything. It, it yeah. actually increases the absorption of certain drugs as well. Um, so it, it has a direct effect in the gut to increase absorption of, of anything you take. Um, but there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of herbs where I think um, different components within the herb itself will, will affect absorption. So with, with turmeric being one of those examples, uh, I'm not sure if either of the others have any specific examples. Ayurveda's got this lovely concept of supporting medicines or carriers if you want to take a herb to a lungs, for example. So um, honey is quite often used or milk or black pepper. So um, this concept of carriers to take a herb to where you want it to go is, is, is very sophisticated and well-developed in, in Ayurveda. It's, it's a fascinating area of it. So Joe, could you tell us a bit about your role with education and introducing herbs and spices to all sorts of demographics and going into schools and whatnot, commenting on what Viv's just said? Yes, a big part of what Holly and I do is going out and talking to members of the public about diet, herbs and lifestyle. And we see plants as a really powerful way to connect people back with nature, again, linking back with the Ayurveda. Um, and that can be healing on, on so many levels. Um, I was really intrigued. The Natural History Museum brought out a report a couple of years ago on, on nature deficit disorder. And um, certainly having worked in primary school, um, that um, environment, that was something I very much observed. So we've partnered with the Soil Association and we have something called Know Your Roots um, as part of their Food for Life program, which is very much teaching children in schools and nurseries about how to grow organic herbs. Um, we had grandparents gardening week where the grandparents were encouraged to, to go in, so there was a social benefit there. And uh, we've used our volunteering days to run independent workshops. Um, so we got the kids to make their own version of Mint Refresh, one of our, our tea bags with herbs like mm. uh, mint, licorice, coriander and fennel and there's this wonderful period in children's lives between about 7 and 13 when they are just so open to learning and what this was at two local primary schools we ran these workshops and I was amazed about how many parents came up to me in, in Sainsbury's afterwards going oh we've started drinking this tea now and and it was a real example of positive pester power the children were really encouraging their parents to try their herbal tea blend that they made but then also go out and buy some herbal teas and try the herbs that they'd experimented with. Um, so I'd, I'd like to do a lot more of that in the future. I think that's so powerful. And I'd love to talk to you about getting our medical students involved with that because we've got 20 plus branches at UK medical schools and around six of them and more and more are starting to take up this initiative that we started in Bristol called Food for Thought, which gets our medical students who, you know, are already security checked um, to go into local primary schools and teach kids around healthy eaters and healthy eating and diabetes prevention. So I think we could do something great with getting a bit of herbal education in as well that will teach both our medical students and then they can teach that to the primary school students. So I think that'd be really great. That sounds exciting. Yes. So um, finishing up, um, you just mentioned that you'd love to put more energy into herbal education for kids. If you had unlimited funding, what other kind of areas in society um, and within the healthcare system would you like to tackle? What are some dream projects that involve the power of herbal medicine and education for you all and in the research sense with uh, Viv and Marion? 
Well, I mean, for me, I, I just think there's an amazing public health piece around health benefits of herbs. Um, and da- daily benefits of herbs. So it's not necessarily even doing a clinical study. It's it's just reconnecting people with, you know, traditional ways of life. And, um, yeah, it's a lovely, huge, qualitative piece of research to really understand people's perceptions and, and deep, deep-rooted perceptions of, of plants and what they know and actually... What measures do we need to put into place in terms of education, health promotion, and research? Absolutely. And Marion? I mean, yeah, kind of echoing what what Viv just said, really. But I think, um, you know, some of the really big health issues that that we have are kind of the the, the so called lifestyle uh, non communicable diseases like diabetes and obesity and cardiovascular disease. Uh, and, and we know from lots of the research that we've done that, that in just increasing uh, things like green tea and turmeric and other herbs in, in, in your diet can have big impact on that. I mean, obviously, those are, are conditions that are hugely influenced by um, people's environment and their living space. And that's a much bigger, much bigger thing than herbs can solve. But um, maybe we can make some kind of impact there with herbs too. Absolutely. And last but not least, Joe, the educator. I, I think for me, yeah, it would be building on the work we've been doing about reconnecting kids with their natural environment. Mm. Um, there's a lovely quote from Alex Laird, a herbalist, saying, eat something wild every day. Um, and I read recently a report saying that 50% of UK school children couldn't identify a nettle. Um, um, I just picked nettle because it's a, an amazing herb that we use in various of our pucker products. And we had a spring herbs activity, so the whole of Pucker had to go out and forage for nettle, dandelion, um, wild garlic, and, and cleavers, um, and make something and then post it on our workplace group as a way just to get people reconnecting and learning about the herbs. And to be able to roll that out um, and really support primary school teachers in... Um, I live rurally, so it's less of a problem, but inner city schools just to help kids identify, you know, our, our common herbs that we take for granted, but... It was a real wake-up call that 50% of kids couldn't identify. Mm. I didn't know what a nettle was. And because they sting, I kind of thought that would be... Mm. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Absolutely. And I'm in in that similar vein, and there's a lot of work to be done with kids and nutrition. Um, I know Dr James Fleming, a GP up in Burnley, who spoke at the College of Medicine conference um, that I spoke at with Simon and Sebastian in um october you know these kids um of primary school age weren't able to identify courgettes aubergines um cauliflower you name it they hadn't heard of those vegetables they're like what's an aubergine and it's fascinating to really see how food poverty can impact people and their health and their parents as well so um yeah very interesting piece of work right there and so uh, just starting to wrap up, Viv and Marion, I know you work so much with uh, universities and students and you take on these interns who are interested in herbal research and you've listed so many universities and research centres across the UK, but how can herbal medicine actually be integrated more into conventional science courses? That's, that's a great question too. And I, I've spent 15 years in higher education and uh conventional courses 
on the one hand can be a challenge because a lot are accredited with professional bodies so you would have to influence oh, i won't name any names but often getting some of these really established professional bodies to change their curriculum templates is quite challenging on the other hand from what i see the real innovators in higher education it often just depends on the passion of an individual um but what we do observe going out around universities we've got you know wonderful um, Elizabeth Apara at Kingston University is a nutritionist. We've got Hayley and Rajay at Manchester Met. We've got Joe Botel at Exeter. You know, there's a lot of passion out there to understand about plant plant chemistry and, and the power of herbs. So, but, yeah, it relies on inspirational individuals, but then you can create a wave. You can start publishing and you can create a bit more of a community around that, which is certainly you know, the, the journey that we want to go on. Absolutely. Um, Marin, do you have anything to add on that? Having gone from that, you know, the same, when I was speaking to Simon Mills, that same traditional scientific route, he went from his bio, his medical sciences at Cambridge, you with your pharmacology, and now you've pivoted into this holistic healthcare world. But, you know, how do we change it from the start, integrating it? I think really, yeah, as, as Viv says, it's, it's about finding the passionate individuals. I think yeah. once you speak to people on a level uh, and, uh, and start talking to them, generally you'll find a lot of people are quite open-minded to the idea. It's just never occurred to them with their huge academic workload how they could incorporate this one thing into, uh, into uh, their, their curriculum. And I think just starting to have those conversations and maybe we could start thinking about uh, resources that we could produce ourselves that would just help out to uh, you know, give guest lectures or, or, or influence some um, practicals in some way uh, within universities. But yes, yeah, I think it's a small step-by-step uh, change by, by talking on a personal level with people. Absolutely. And how have the general perceptions and feedback been when you have, um, you know, worked with universities around herbal research? Um, do you ever approach some and are met with scepticism or criticism? And how do you overcome that? I must say we haven't. That's um, brilliant. It's great. We haven't. And, uh, you know, the comments from student interns and, and people that come in is, you know, that, people have had their eyes really open like I had going into pucker yeah. you know it's, it's been life-changing it's it's just changed every perception about science that I had um so it, it's always really positive and yeah I, I think it would be good to do more of an evaluation around that so we do document more mm. carefully what these perceptions are and understand you know where where someone maybe is struggling to understand um, our approaches exactly and then people can't say no once you have that evaluation and this you know amplification of positive feedback so yeah finishing up uh, what sort of events and educational kind of conferences do pucker sponsor you mentioned you're very closely aligned with college of medicine what other um things do you guys sponsor who do you work with externally So, yeah, I think I've touched on quite a lot of this um, generally, but we, uh, we've got our 1% for the Planet Partners in the form of the, the Eden Project, um, the Natural History Museum, um, and then we're also working with um, health practitioners and the College of Medicine. Um, Soil Association is also a really key um, public partnership for us. Um, 
yeah, those kind of events, really. I don't know if, Marion, if you've got anything to add from the research perspective. And also internationally, Jo, um, how, you know, have you worked with any organisations internationally? Uh, so Puck is at a really interesting stage mm. of development where we're building up our network of local herbal experts. So we've got herbal experts recruited now in France, um, Benelux, Germany, um, the US, and Australia, New Zealand is, is, is being interviewed for at the moment. So if there's any uh, herbalists in that area who'd like to join the Pucker crew... We have Australian like listeners a lot when I look at our analytics. Great. Drop, drop me an email at education at puckerherbs.com and uh, you can sign up to the Pucker Life Academy through that email as well. Um, but we're building up this herbal ecosystem, if you like. So at the moment, um, the focus is more on the UK, but we're really looking forward once um, we've got those herbal experts on the ground and to building up both education activities and research partnerships on the ground as, as Pucker grows its markets globally. Sure. Viv, did you want to add Viv, anything? you got anything to add there? Um, we, yeah, as, as you said, we're kind of at that point of moving from a UK focus to a global focus. So we're, Marion and myself, are starting to reach out to universities and researchers in the US. Um, we've also just got a funding bid actually going in to develop some work with researchers in India, which is hugely exciting. And yeah, um, so we're going to be doing more of that kind of thing. So seeking out new partners, applying for research funding, uh, and yeah, growing growing what we can do and bringing in the expertise that we need to deliver our, our vision, really. Sure. And, and finally, before the fun questions, how can medical students and doctors who are our main audience, how can they get involved with you guys? That's a, that's a good question. And clearly by our silence, it's one we've not really thought about enough and we absolutely should because we're absolutely passionate about, you know, educating and, and working with universities and, and, you know, science schools and medical schools. Um, and we... we we need, we need to rise to that challenge in your question and actually think about what does that look like? You know, we're, we're, not, we're not hugely active on social media, so you can't, you know, connect personally with us there. Um, we do hope to start developing maybe annual research events, uh, maybe sponsoring journal publications, so encouraging people to write. Mm. But, yeah, we need to think about that, which I... I am sorry, it's a really poor answer to your question. That's fine, because we can <laughs> we can step in and help you with that, because I've got loads of ideas about how medics can work with you guys, um, so we can have a conversation. And so finishing up uh, with some fun questions, each of you, what is your favourite pucker tea? One only. <laughs> Mine's Tulsi Clarity. Me too! That's what I said sorry, on the... That's why I said on the podcast with you and Simon, mine's Tulsi, <laughs> holy basil, I love it. It's great, yeah. It's such great properties in the herb as well. I've got it right here in my cupboard. Yeah. And Joe. So my two-year-olds just come to bring me a parcel. Uh, mine is, is love tea. Um, I just love, um, I love the name and I love the, the supporting flowers. So rose and chamomile elderflower and lime flower um lavender um so i, I just think of that as a, as a hug in a mug oh, i love that so and viv um it's 
it's turmeric active all the way. So turmeric's got all the ginger family in it. It's got a bit of ginger. It's got your galangal and your turmeric, of course. And it's, it's weaned me off drinking gallons of coffee every day, joining Pucker. So two or three cups of turmeric active, as Marion is nodding furiously, is uh, what I need to start my day. But, and it's gorgeous. It's lovely. And um, then to just bring it back to food, my final question, um, what would be your ideal last supper meal? So if you only had one day left to live, a little bit morbid, um, what would be your ideal starter, main and dessert? And it can be full of health or you can throw health out the window. It's up to you. Shall I go first then? Go on. I reckon uh, my starter would be a mixed meze starter full of lots of uh, herbs and spices, but lots of tasty little things uh, and a good variety. And main course would be aubergine parmigiana. I love uh, tomato, aubergine and mozzarella and something cheesy. And then I reckon I'd probably have uh, a chocolate cheesecake for pudding. So definitely not going for the health there. Delish. You deserve it. (laughs) Um, And who next? I don't mind going next, Andy. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, sorry, Joe. You go. <laughs> okay. Uh, mine's not that healthy either. Well, it is a little bit. My start will be uh, vegetable sushi, uh, made with my kids. They're pretty good at making sushi now. And then the main course, I continue with the Asian theme. I, I love ramen, so some kind of noodles and soup and some uh, broth there Delicious. and then and pudding would be uh, Thai banana pancakes but now Marion's mentioned chocolate I'd have to have chocolate as well wow I've never had a Thai banana pancake that sounds so cool and Viv I'm sorry I'm going to be so predictable and so I'll probably go out for a curry <laughs> and I can't wait to go <laughs> to a local curry house here in Dursley um, for just simply a bargy a beautiful dal with lovely smoked flavours and lots. I'm a huge garlic fan. I could eat raw garlic every day. Uh, And I'm not really a pudding person, but I might wash that down with a pint of lager. Delicious. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much. It was such an informative and just incredibly eye-opening podcast, especially just hearing about how Puka is a B Corp and full of sustainability um, through and through. And so thank you all so much for taking the time to come on and girl power all the way. Yeah, girl power. Thanks, Ali. Thanks, Ali. Wow, another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice So please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.